Chelsea Podcast. I'm Ashton Kazarian. On today's show, we have an amazing guest. We have Heather West, Head of Policy for Americas for Mozilla, joining us to talk about misinformation, the election, Section 230, and platform regulation overall. Heather, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, and I think this is your first episode with me. Your last one was with our previous host. May he um, be in peace at his government job. Um, Indeed. we hope to make this a better experience for you than the last time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can say that the uh, the bar is high, but we're going to have fun. Oh, wow. He's going to enjoy this. Um, <laughs> well, uh, the election and questions about misinformation are obviously swirling even more intensely. Now we're, we're getting closer. There's like, what, three months left, if not? Um, Less than three months, I think. Yeah, I just... Uh, it's, it's been stressful for everyone, no matter on what side of this you are or if you're on any side overall. Um, I don't think anyone would want misinformation to be uh, playing any role in this election and questioning the results of the election um, like it did a little bit last time. So, Heather, uh, you had all of tech policy for Mozilla and you have a very you know, broad resume. Before that, you were a coder, you just told me offline. <laughs> So you have a wide expertise in tech and tech policy. What do you think are the main questions we have to ask ourselves and address when it comes to misinformation uh, spread online? I think that there's a lot of very good questions that we can ask about misinformation online, but, but the really, the, the, the big picture question that we need to be asking ourselves is what is the internet we want? Um, and is it, is this you know, ecosystem of platforms and this kind of information um, spread what we were aiming for? I don't think that anyone would say we're where we want to be in terms of how people consume information online um, and how people discover information online. I think, uh, as you said, that's been um, very evident over the last five years, probably. I think people um, have their particular actors who have figured out how to game the system and they're really good at it. Uh, and I think that, that platforms have had to play a game of catch up. Um, and you know, we can see what, what is successful and what's not. I think that there's been some experiments by various platforms that, that have been, you know, less than successful. Um, I think for example, you know, Facebook has talked about how putting fact check labels on, particular articles actually drives people to click on the articles, which wasn't what they intended to do. Um, But I think that we're in a little bit of um, an experimentation phase, but of course in the lead up to an election that a lot of people think is is one of the most important elections uh, in recent history, I think that there's a lot of anxiety about the idea that these platforms are driving sometimes very questionable or straight up false information and and people are are seeking that information out um i think that there's some very reasonable steps that platforms could be taking but there's also just a lot of uncertainty around what the right thing to do is so let's talk for a second about the incentives and the algorithms uh so you mentioned how they sometimes just but a good tool with good intent can be uh, having very unintended consequences, like like people mm-hmm. clicking on an article that has a fact check. Uh, but let's step even you know one level higher. Uh, algorithms and how they you know sort 
information for you. One of my personal, and this is not misinformation related, but my, one of my personal, um, you know, vendettas and events is how Instagram changed their algorithm from showing content chronologically to like random. And you can tell a lot of influencers have to now struggle with that. And there's like, they change their economic models and things like that. So algorithms sure. do change the landscape when it comes to information spread and the way information is showcased to each individual. What's like the algorithm role? What do they do now? What they don't do? Sure. I think, I think that the, um, one of the things that's become clear to me is that platforms have a one size fits all algorithm. Um, and the same algorithm that uh, recommends cute puppy videos for me on YouTube um, may or may not be a good fit if I'm looking for kind of authoritative content about the election or about public health or, or any number of topics that have a very, very different impact on my life. Um, I think that there's, you know, it's, it's very clear to me that these algorithms have some unintended consequences. And I think that, that the people who develop the algorithms are, are now conscious of that. That doesn't mean they always know how to, to kind of fix them. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's a little useful to, to think about how the algorithms were shaped. Um, so if you're building, I'm, I'm going to try not to pick on any particular platform too much. So I think it's YouTube's turn. Um, uh, you know, if you're, if you're building YouTube and your goal is to create a website that is actually monetizable, but entertaining and fun, you're going to optimize your algorithm to show videos that people like to watch. Like, but you know, in, in this particular information environment, things that people like to watch aren't always authoritative. They aren't always cute puppy videos. It, it could be, you know, highly produced uh, misinformation like pandemic and, and talking about really important public health topics. Uh, but within the, the kind of the guise, the scope of misinformation. Um, and, and so that, that algorithm that very helpfully suggests you know, all of these cute dog videos, which I will watch many of them, or maybe it's, you know, a cooking tutorial. But, you know, when I'm looking at information that's really going to impact how I, you know, interact with the world, whether it's the election or health, um, I think that that algorithm that optimizes for engagement uh, is really coming up short. I see. And how, okay, uh, I agree. And obviously algorithm is different and it shows you different things based on your interest and your search history. What are, let's say whatever I watched on YouTube before that, that's what mm -hmm. I mean by search history. Um, and you know, it's a lot of, it's like a lot of news, a lot of stand up, and a lot of makeup videos, like for me. So I don't really see misinformation. I see like drama channels, which are very fascinating. Um, but how do you then tinker with an algorithm that some can argue is part of a reason people use the service and is part of a reason? Yeah. Because a lot of people actually, I will say this, a lot of people criticize the algorithm and say that it's creepy that the algorithm can predict what they want. But trust me as someone who like 
finished watching almost everything on Netflix, unless the algorithm like finds something and shows it to me, I'm gonna be like uh, stuck with a dis- like not no- knowing what decision to make. So, of course, and, and so- recommendation algorithms are incredibly important. There's so much information out there that you know not having a search you know an algorithm that that runs your search recommendations an algorithm that runs your video recommendations like there's there's no way for a human brain to sift through this much information um which of course is why you know google has been incredibly successful as they came up with an algorithm that said ah if if one person likes this thing as a result for the search someone else might like it too um and and you know, it started pretty simple, but these recommendation algorithms also, you know, they, they have hundreds, if not thousands of signals that they take in to make these, you know, guesses about what it is that you as a viewer will want to want to see or read or watch. Um, it's incredibly useful, but it's also making it clear that there's a few steps that platforms could take that would probably make it a better experience. Um, for for everyone. I think that a lot of the platforms have started to um, put signals in place for their algorithm that actually says this is a reputable news source um, or this is this is a, a news source that is not known to be reputable um, and kind of ranking the quality of of the outlet that they may or may not choose to recommend. Right. So um, I want to ask you a question, although you started answering it. Uh, what are the other things that algorithms can do um, to be more both transparent, accountable, and also responsible, more aware of the responsibility they have? And by algorithms, I mean yeah. companies. Of so course. what can be done to fix this problem? I think that, that you have kind of... M- come to the magic word here, and it is responsibility. There's a responsibility when you operate a platform um, and when you are essentially serving as the intermediary for these news sources. Um, I think that for a long time, tech companies chose to look the other way and they said, this isn't my problem. Um, I think that we are, there's there's pretty widespread acceptance that that this is a problem and this is something that the companies need to figure out how to deal with um and that is the question of how can we be responsible in this particular information environment do i want to be pushing uh content from prager university who has been you know hit over and over with um, kind of demerits for for spreading misinformation, and if you're you know if you're the platform, you have to decide wh- whether and how to enforce the policies that you've created. I think that that Facebook has come under some some deserved criticism to because they're enforcing some of these policies in in very inconsistent ways. Um, I think there was a story just today about um, some of their uh, enforcement against PragerU. Um, 
and I don't know where that article went, but it's, it's here somewhere. I think that that's the kind of story that, that we need to be looking to and saying, ah, okay, so if you have someone who is spreading misinformation, it is against your policies, what do you do next? Yeah, so you have to think about how you want to apply the policies that you've put in place and what kind of enforcement action you take, um, whether or not you give special treatment to, to advertisers, for example, um, on your site or, or, or that kind of thing. But there's, there's a significant piece of this that is very, um, it, it's inherently human. There's going to be human judgment involved. Mm -hmm. um, as we, as we think about how to do this, because I know that a lot of the, the kind of AI algorithms to spot misinformation, they, they're either going to be overly broad or they're going to miss a lot. Those, those are kind of your two options. Um, and so you're going to have to bring a human into the loop to look at this and say, aha, what do we want to do here? Is this misinformation or is this maybe a group of people combating misinformation. Those two things look very, very similar to an algorithm. Um, so there's, there's also a fair bit that, that platforms could be doing. Um, and there's been a, a lot of attention on Facebook in the last couple of months in particular. Um, Mozilla is part of this campaign called Stop Hate for Profit, um, which aims to um, have advertisers pause their, their Facebook spending until Facebook has created, you know, the policies and procedures that, that really will make their platform, um, frankly, a healthier place for people. Right. So you mentioned something, and you and I both have worked in the space on questions surrounding it, and that's what PragerU, um, both their content and they actually claim that the platforms are prejudiced against them. and. Mm -hmm. Um, discriminate them based on their views, which I didn't know you can get discriminated on and get 1 billion views on YouTube at the same time, but that's a whole yeah. conversation. It is impressive. There's some cognitive dissonance there. Right? Um, maybe they felt they're going to get like 7 billion, like everyone on the planet was going to watch their video. I don't know. Um, but my question is, and this is what the platforms have to juggle, and a lot of people get upset, but I work on Section 230 a lot, as you know, and there are a lot of bills uh, that are trying to regulate Section 230 and amend it in the most um, inauthentic ways. And the incentive that's behind them is the anti-conservative bias that there is no empirical evidence of it existing, but okay, let's just say the kind of the driving force behind it is. It's now been accepted as a fact, like when you talk to folks on the right, you can't really dispute it even anymore because it's just been uh, generally accepted, not by a lot of folks in the Republican Party. Uh, so it's not kind of, you know, a concept that's one or two people are driving. It's an accepted, what they call truth. Mm -hmm. um, and they are putting a lot of pressure and not just political pressure or PR pressure. We've seen the White House executive order to regulate social media companies and that asked NTIA to file a petition with the FCC, which they did. And they're trying to amend Section 230. They're pressuring, you know, their, their very important part of what Section 230 makes things turn possible, blah, blah, blah. Guys read or listen to every single other thing I've ever done. Um, but 
what do they do? So, right, you talked about the campaign, uh, Stop Hate for Profit, you guys are part of, and I know other groups like Color of Change and other yes. really great groups are part of that. Um, and so it looks like the companies, and right now we're talking about bigger tech platforms, obviously, are between a rock and a hard place in some sense. Um, and if I was not, I think it's pretty obvious where I stand on this, but if I was not, how do you, how would you advise they operate? Because let's say November comes and goes and we have the same president and we have the same makeup of Congress, right? We have a Democratic mm -hmm. House and a Republican majority Senate and we have a Republican president in the White House. Um, they're in big trouble and they're, there's going to be even more pressure and there's going to be actual enforcement against them. And they have to evaluate that against the pressure from the left to like, you know, take down more and take down PragerU or whatever that is, or Breitbart, um, which on the right are considered now mm -hmm. legitimate yeah. sources of information. So how do, you know, you said um, fact checking or saying what's a reliable source. Like now we've entered a decade where we have to argue what the truth is now. <laughs> like what's mm -hmm. the truth, what's Sadly. the fact. So um, I always struggle with trying to figure out like, how do you do that as a company, as a society? Yeah, well, and I think that, that companies and society, we're still figuring that out. I, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that, that I don't have to do that from the inside right now. I think, you know, <laughs> Mozilla has a lot, of, a lot of concerns about the way these platforms work, but we don't have a social platform of our own. Um, I think that there's, but there's a few steps that, that these platforms could do. And of course, Stop Hate for Profit is very focused on Facebook, but none of this is specific to Facebook. Um, every platform has to choose what direction to take on these things. Um, I think that, that Facebook could start with, um, you know, deprioritizing things that they think are, are not good for folks. Um, whether that is um, anti-vax information or something like pandemic um, spreading, spreading conspiracy theories about the coronavirus or, um, you know, there are really clear cut things that, that all platforms actually do have policies on. And that's things like, um, telling you to, to vote by November 5th instead of November 3rd. Um, and right. well, remember you know, it was, uh, you can vote for Hillary by texting this number. And I think they were yeah. getting, uh, black Am Americans. Exactly. Um, and that, that is an easy one to, to look at and say, aha, this is unacceptable. We don't want it on our platform. Um, and so platforms have, have already made that decision, but that's a policy decision. They're not necessarily implementing that with technology, although there is some ability to, to detect. Um, so I think that there's a, you know, but then we start getting into the interesting gray area um, where something like the coronavirus, there's a lot of information out there and there's a lot that we simply don't know even six months into this pandemic. Um, and that means that, that the, the folks who are reviewing and moderating on a platform really have a tough job. Um, you, you see, I, I think pandemic tends to be my, my canonical example, but you know, if you have 
relatively well-produced material. People often will take it as fact, especially if it, you know, if there's some confirmation bias happening. Um, and I do think that there's, there's a piece of this that, that I think users are getting more savvy on social media um, and asking questions. And I do see more people asking those questions in my own social media feeds, which I think is, is encouraging, but really this does come back to the platforms at the end of the day, like these platforms have a responsibility. They need to be accountable. Um, they need to be transparent. They need to, you know, take a stand on the kind of content that they are willing to play host to. And, you know, do they want to, to deem acceptable white supremacist groups or anti-Semitism or conspiracy theories or Holocaust denialism? There's, there's a whole list of things that, that they need to make those decisions about, but then they need to actually enforce those policies uh, rigorously. Um, I think, you know, there's been some, some really encouraging, uh, I, I say that with some trepidation, like, but there's, there's been some steps that the companies have taken that I think could be helpful. Um, but we, we don't have a lot of time before the election. We're probably not going to see um, the impact. And, you know, the, the other thing that, that we are seeing is, I think it was a, an intelligence report last week saying that that Russia, China, and Iran are all engaging in in pretty sophisticated state level misinformation campaigns. Um, which of course further complicates this this question. I did see that a lot of the platforms are rolling out initiatives uh, for a safer election with dis with disclaimers for posts about the election and things like that. Uh, what do you think can be done in that space uh, as we're, you know, edging so close to the election um, to kind of negate at least some of the negative effects? Well, I'm not jealous of the folks who have to figure this out. <laughs> I will be frank. Um, it, it's hard. It's a hard question. And at the end of the day, I firmly believe that, that most platforms and most companies don't want this misinformation on their platform. If there was an easy like switch that they could throw, they would have done it already. Um, but what that means is that that I think it would be really useful and important for these companies to be working with researchers and academics who can bring in some outside perspective and can help them think through these problems. Um, I think that there's a, a a reasonable number of small steps that people could take um, in terms of how they run their platforms. Um, and that's, you know, things like algorithms that detect particular kinds of anti-Semitism, for example, or that flags conspiracy theories or, um, you know, public health topics of interest. Um, and I do think that there's been some positive work there but there's there's also getting getting folks involved and thinking about what the policies should look like and creating a real collaborative effort to to make these platforms better for folks would be a really positive step before i let you go i wanted to uh invite you to our women in tech segment that has been created since a new host took over the show uh, <laughs> and you know we find it 
very helpful, and we've heard that uh, from our listeners that they are always interested to in, they're always interested to hear about your life journey, whatever you want to share, and kind of how you ended up in tech policy and how do you feel in tech policy. Um, but just yeah, kind of like what what interested you in this? Kind of how did you get into it? Yeah. So I can very directly uh, say that I ended up in tech policy because of a class that I took at MIT um, called Ethics and Law on the Electronic Frontier. Um, I did not know at the time that my professors were luminaries in tech policy. They were. They're, they're wonderful folks. Um, but I took this class and it was essentially a history of internet law. Um, I thought it was fascinating. Um, I attended Wellesley College. I was a computer science and cognitive science major. But at the end of the day, I enjoyed the puzzle of coding a lot more than the day-to-day. -day. So I loved it in college. Mm -hmm. um, and then once I got into the real world, so to speak, it, it quickly became clear to me that entry-level coding was not going to make me a happy person. Um, I suspect it would have gotten a lot more interesting if I had stuck with it. But because I had taken this class, I ended up um, getting really excited about tech policy. Um, and this is before it was a common, you know, a common dinner table topic, the way it is in some ways now. You know, right. we talk about data breaches, we talk about, you know, social media, we talk about misinformation. Um, you know, I can't, I can't turn on the radio without hearing kind of a professionally relevant news story. Um, but when I started in this field, it was, it was very niche and the idea of, you know, privacy policies on websites was relatively new, but, you know, I ended up, I, I started my career at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Um, I still yeah, love them as an organization, but I've, I've been, I've hopped around kind of idealistic tech companies, uh, and it's been really quite fun and interesting and I've gotten to work with a whole bunch of great folks both inside those companies and folks like you partners and and uh, collaborators that that were all you know the, the the fun thing for me is we've all sat down and said aha this is what we want the internet to be how do we get there um, and there's plenty of room for disagreement about the specifics of that but it's been a wonderful journey in terms of smart, passionate folks who, who enjoy nerding out about stuff. It's kind of great. That is uh, a great way of putting it. And I think we do need more people in tech policy like you who are optimists. <laughs> I am an optimist. Seeing the bright side of the things, which I personally sometimes fail to do just from, and you've been doing this, I've been doing this for for a little over four years. You've been doing this for way longer than me and not trying to date you. You're very, <laughs> that's, that's it's, not it's been a bit, it's <laughs> fascinating. Uh, but you know, you were kind of in tech policy when it was just starting. And I think now it's a full fledged career that people consider. Um, Absolutely. I sometimes talk about it as a like very gloomy picture of it, especially right now uh, and last year. But who knows, maybe next year is going to be a little, maybe the maybe. part and who knows. It, it could be. It, it absolutely could be. I do think that there's, um, I do have optimism just because I do, again, 
there's all these really smart folks trying to solve these problems. Um, and, you know, I think it's, there, there's, there's two sides of that though. Um, one of the reasons that I'm optimistic about this is that we've actually moved past some of the kind of techno libertarian optimism, the idea that, that we can look the other way and things will just work out. Um, mm -hmm. I, that hasn't worked well. And, and I think people recognize that, um, you know, to, to, it doesn't scale. The techno libertarian optimism doesn't scale. It was great in right. the beginning. Yeah. But it just that's, doesn't scale. That's right. Like we've, we've moved past the idea of if I didn't see it, it isn't bad. Um, and that's actually really a, a positive thing. I think, um, you know, very rarely does benign inattention work in the long term. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think it's, it's become very clear from the perspective of policymakers on the left and the right, um, as well as I think, you know, users of social media that at the end of the day, more needs to be done to, to create kind of a reasonable environment online. Um, you know, whether, whether you're thinking about that, uh, as your social media platform, whether you're thinking about that as a way to save journalism, whether you're thinking about that as, you know, what, what results show up in search, all of that ends up being very important. And, and, and like I, I mentioned more of a dinner table topic than mm -hmm. it ever has been. Right. Play our, play our podcast during dinner. Um, it's, <laughs> it's a thought I'm going to leave uh, everyone with. Heather, thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, tell everyone where people can find you and find Mozilla's work. Yeah. So um, you can follow me on Twitter at Heather West on our blog at blog.mozilla.com slash net policy. Awesome. Well, Heather, thank you so much for joining us. And of everyone, course. rate review and subscribe to us uh, because I'm nicely asking you to. <laughs> Thanks for having me. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.